With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 294. It's titled, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Economic Events. I recently celebrated a birthday. It was a good day. Peaceful. What I didn't have was a birthday cake, and we did not sing the happy birthday song. Robert Schiller, in his book, Narrative Economics, and in which today's episode title comes from the subtitle of his book, wrote that the happy birthday song may be the best known song of all time. He mentioned it's not particularly admired for its beauty or grace. It grew unplanned and uncontrolled, he writes. There is no history of a government edict requiring the song to be sung or a marketing campaign promising lifelong popularity for those who sing it or have it sung to them. The song spread like an epidemic in the 1920s and 30s, fell back a little bit during World War II, and then it began again. Warner Chapel Music had a copyright from 1935, collected millions of dollars up until 2016, when it was determined that Happy Birthday to You was very, very similar to an 1893 song titled Good Morning to All. Sounded exactly the same, and so they lost the trademark. The happy birthday song went viral like an epidemic. We have all become more familiar, I think, with the mathematics behind epidemics. One of the first theories was proposed in 1927 by William Ogilvy Kermack and Anderson Gray McKendrick. Kermack was a Scottish biochemist, McKendrick a Scottish physician. It was a simple model. It was called the Sir model where they divided the population. The percentage of the population that is susceptible to a disease, the percent of the population that is infectious, and the percent of the population that is recovered, and they add up to 100%. According to their model, an epidemic ends when the percentage of the population that recovers and is immune is increasing to such a level that it leaves less people that are susceptible and that those susceptible people are then less likely to be exposed to those that are infected. Now, there are much more complex models. There's what's known as a compartmental model called SCIHFR, where S is for susceptible, E is exposed, I is infected, H is hospitalized, F is dead but not buried, and R is recovered or buried. A lot more complexity there. In this episode, we're going to look at how narratives, stories, impact financial decisions. And they act very similarly to a disease virus in terms of how they spread and then fall back and the epidemic ends. 
Now that the global economy has been shut down for a month or more, government officials have to decide how are they going to restart the economy. And as citizens, we have to decide how actively are we willing to participate in the economy in terms of going out in public again. There are several scenarios that very much depend on what percent of the population is susceptible versus having recovered. It's possible there are millions and millions that were asymptomatic, and so we have herd immunity. Or perhaps not. The economy could be opened up again to let the virus spread. There could be a second wave, and there's a risk of overwhelming the healthcare system so that there's a spike in deaths because a large percentage of the population is still susceptible. Or the economy could open up and deaths don't spike because the virus has been spreading for months and a large percentage of individuals are already immune. That would mean that the overall mortality rate is much lower, closer to that of the flu, because so many people have had it, and we know approximately how many people have died. Or, and this is probably what's going to happen, we're going to open up the economy gradually and see how things evolve. There's a great deal of uncertainty. I saw a report earlier this week from South Korea, 116 people that had tested positive for COVID-19 have it again. Now, they're not sure if maybe these individuals never fully recovered, so the disease became reactivated, or maybe the initial test was a false positive, so they never really had the disease, even though the test said they did, or maybe they were reinfected, which would be the worst case, because then maybe herd immunity doesn't exist. But there's no way of knowing this without massive testing, which is still not being done, at least in the U.S. From a personal health standpoint, what do we do? I know that I'm following, my family's following the precautionary principle that I discussed a few weeks ago on the show on how to handle the COVID-19 shutdown. It is to take preventive action in the face of uncertainty. We know that we don't want to get the disease. I suspect you, like me, know people that have had it, some that have died. We don't want it, particularly if we don't know how severe the case will be. Potentially, we'll wait at least a percent of the population before they engage again until there's a vaccine. Or they'll wait for some type of statistical evidence which is not something that we generally do. There's a paper by Tracy Freling and her co-authors where they looked at 61 papers that explored different types of evidence. And they found that based on the research of these papers, when emotional engagement is high, such as there's a severe threat, a health issue that could affect you, that statistical evidence is less influential than anecdotal evidence. Stories, narratives are more influential on how individuals make decisions when the stakes are high. But they found that in situations where emotional engagement is relatively low, so there's a low threat, that individuals are more likely to rely on statistical evidence. Interesting, isn't it? So we don't know, and, and in some regards, we do not have the statistics to make an informed judgment, as I talked about 
again a few weeks ago on the difference between risk and uncertainty. In the face of extreme uncertainty, we need to be cautious. When it comes to the economy, we don't have any idea how cautious people will be. We can see what's going on in China, where the economy has been up and running now for a month or so. It is still operating at only about 80% of where it was a year ago with regards to energy usage, traffic congestion. One of the conundrums is the stock market is acting in some ways like everything's okay. It's only down 15% year-to-date. Normal correction. At the same time when the economic challenge is probably the greatest that we have seen since World War II. Why is that? I propose, and I think Robert Schiller would agree because he wrote the book about it, that it is the narrative. It's the economic narrative. He writes, A key proposition of this book is that Economic fluctuations are substantially driven by contagion of oversimplified and easily transmitted variants of economic narratives. These ideas color people's loose thinking and actions. As with disease epidemics, not everyone becomes infected. In the case of narrative epidemics, the people who missed the epidemic may tell you that there was no such important popular narrative. But in a historic epidemic, For most people, the narrative will be fundamental to their reasons for doing or not doing things that affect the economy. It's the stories, it's the narratives that propel individuals to make decisions about what they're willing to purchase, how much they're going to save, how are they going to invest. He points out it's difficult to determine which economic narratives will go viral, just like we had no idea the happy birthday song would go viral. Or... If you walk your neighborhood, you see a lot of drawings with chalk paint, especially geographic drawings that look like stained glass windows. Who would have known? Schiller writes, major things happen because of seemingly irrelevant mutations and narratives that have slightly higher contagion rates, slightly lower forgetting rates, or first-mover effects that give one set of competing narratives a head start. These random events can feed back into bigger and more pervasive narrative constellations. So we don't know. And we don't know exactly what narrative is driving the financial markets right now. I suggested in a recent episode that it is the narrative that central banks are in control, that their actions will prevent much of the economic calamity. Federal Reserve and other central banks have been extremely aggressive, much more so than the great financial crisis, with regard to which assets they are willing to purchase. The Federal Reserve last week announced they're buying non-investment-grade bond ETFs, junk bond ETFs, as well as many other assets. In the UK, they announced the Bank of England would fund the UK government directly without the government having to issue bonds. They're just going to provide the money in the bank account that the UK Treasury has at the Bank of England. That's astounding. Robert Schiller, in his book, has six propositions regarding how economic narratives impact the economy and financial markets. First, epidemics can be fast or slow, big or small. 
And second, important economic narratives may comprise a very small percentage of popular talk. In other words, it doesn't have to be a majority of people that believe the narrative and act on it. If, for example, there's a narrative that causes people to not want to buy cars, it doesn't have to be a majority of the people for it to have a huge economic impact as car sales plummet. Proposition three, narrative constellations have more impact than any one narrative. So there's linkages. They could be smaller narratives that together form a group or a constellation of narratives. We've seen this with the pandemic. There's all types of narratives going on, but even within the actions from the central bank, there's narratives regarding maybe it's creating a bubble in asset classes, or perhaps it will lead to inflation or deflation, but different narratives, they can be very simple stories. But if they go viral, they can influence how individuals and businesses act. Proposition four is that the economic impact of narratives may change through time. At some point, narratives just become too common and then people don't react to them anymore. They don't let those narratives drive their decisions. There's some new narrative that might impact that. Proposition five, truth is not enough to stop false narratives. Like we saw in that paper I referenced, anecdotes are more powerful than statistics. I've seen reports that a third of Americans believe in some type of conspiratorial beginnings for the coronavirus, that it was done on purpose in some secret lab in China somewhere. It's anecdotal, probably not true, but that hasn't stopped that narrative from spreading. Proposition six is contagion of economic narratives builds on opportunities for repetition. And we've seen that in social media. If there's a way for the narrative to repeat, to be shared, often in person or via social media, then it spreads. Or if there's some ritual, the birthday song, why does it stay year after year? Well, it's personalized. You use that person's name and you give them a birthday cake. And you allow them to make a wish at the end, but it's a ritual that's repeated. Even if the song isn't really that good, it continues to spread. There's opportunities for repetition. Before we continue, let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you're running a new or existing business, I can't think of a better partner than Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch of your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the do we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow, whether you're selling shipping supplies or clothing. They can help you sell everywhere with their all-in-one e-commerce platform, as well as their in-person POS system. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. When I order from an online shop and see that they're using Shopify, that gives me a great deal of confidence my order will be correct and arrive in a timely manner. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including Allbirds and Brooklinen and entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash david all lowercase go to shopify.com slash david now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in 
shopify.com slash david. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My favorite part of Schiller's book is he gives examples of narrative themes that have repeated themselves over the years, broad categories, many of which we've talked about in this podcast over the years. The first is panic versus confidence. Confidence in the financial system or in banks, or panic. I saw this clearly following the great financial crisis. During the crisis itself, there was calls for federal governments to act, to save the banks, to save the financial system. And then the narrative, just, it switched later in 2009 and in 2010 to where suddenly the fear was on the Eurozone and the sustainability of the government debt in Italy, in Spain, in Greece. Completely different narrative that was driving decisions. Interest rates in Greece and Spain skyrocketed. And then the narrative went away to where the interest rates in Greece on government debt was lower than the U.S. government, than the yield on U.S. government bonds. So that's the first category, panic versus confidence. Second, frugality versus conspicuous consumption. I've mentioned David Shee's book, The Simple Life. He goes through history starting before the American Revolution in the U.S. and how this theme of simplicity and no, we don't want to live a simple life. We got to get out and buy because that's what Americans do to help businesses. It's another theme, frugality versus conspicuous consumption. Third is the gold standard versus fiat currencies, cryptocurrencies. What is sound money versus infinite money that the Federal Reserve can create and print out of thin air? That's a narrative that involves inflation, rising prices, confidence in central banks. That narrative is going to be with us and very important in the months ahead, along with confidence in the federal government to be able to handle the debt load. And now with central banks just funding the emergency spending that needs to be done, but just funding it, no need to issue bonds in the UK anymore, an infinite amount of spending potentially. A fourth theme, and we've talked about it at length on the podcast, actually four and five, four labor-saving machines replacing many jobs, and five, automation and artificial intelligence replace almost all jobs. Schiller quoted Aristotle in politics talking about labor-saving machines could leave slaves with not enough to do. That's how old that narrative is. But it's certainly something that continues to be relevant. As machines and AI replace jobs, will there be new jobs available? For people to work so they can earn money? Or will we need government to provide that income through some type of 
guaranteed income plan. Very common theme. Six is real estate booms and bust. And seven is stock market bubbles. The bubble themes. And they come and go, the narratives. The housing bubble in the U.S., that was driven by a narrative. Anecdotal evidence. I've mentioned in the past how shocked I was when I realized this was a bubble when we made some friends that had come to Idaho to go to college that he had funded by flipping a building lot in Florida that he had never seen. Just drove from Kentucky down to Florida, went to the office, bought some lots, sold them six months later and made enough to go to college. So he drove out and went to college. But these bubbles, booms and bust. The narrative right now, is the Federal Reserve creating another bubble? I've gotten feedback from some members of Money for the Restless Plus. I sense a little frustration. I know that I'm conservatively invested right now. The model portfolios are structured conservatively, preparing for a deep economic recession of unknown length, where historically stock markets have fallen 45% or more. And it happens over a period of months, not over 30 days. We've talked about clearing rallies. We're seeing that. But it's hard to sit back and not do anything as you try to manage regret when markets are rallying, even though the economic news is getting worse. We have a bias toward action. I came across a fascinating paper by Michael Barelli titled Action Bias Among Elite Soccer Goalkeepers, The Case of Penalty Kicks. And they analyzed goalkeepers during penalty kicks, 286 penalty kicks in top leagues and championships worldwide. And they looked at whether the goalkeeper stayed in place or jumped to the right or the left. They determined that the optimal strategy was to stay in place. But most of the time, goalkeepers either jumped right or left. And the authors determined or proposed that the reason why, here's their quote, a goal scored yields worse feelings for the goalkeeper following inaction, staying in the center, then following action, jumping, leading to a bias for action. In other words, they felt worse if a goal was scored and they didn't jump to the right or to the left. What's fascinating about that is the most successful strategy would be to take no action. And since they don't want a goal to be scored on them, that would be the rational thing to do. But when they don't jump to the right or the left and a goal is scored, they feel worse because it looks like they didn't do anything. In investing, we have a bias toward action. That's why I prefer to make incremental changes because it satisfies a desire to do something in the face of uncertainty without making a huge change that we could regret. You can manage a regret better by making incremental changes. But right now, when I look at my portfolio and look at the models, it's mostly in action right now, waiting to see till we have more statistical evidence that the pandemic is slowing and that there's some early indicators that the economy is improving. Until then, we can be patient. I think it's important to consider the stories we're telling ourselves. Yes, 
The economy is driven by narratives, simple stories that go viral. We need to consider the stories that are causing us to take action. Are they anecdotal or are they based on statistics? Because when the stakes are high, if statistics are available, we should depend on them and not just on anecdotes. And if it's highly uncertain, radical uncertainty, and there are no statistics yet available, like we're seeing with this pandemic, then we act with caution so that we're not ruined or irreparably harmed. If you could be harmed significantly by the stock market falling another 50% from here in the face of the unknown regarding this pandemic, because of the lack of massive testing, because of not knowing what reinfection rates are, if it's even possible, what's the level of herd immunity, how long will the economy be shut down, and when it's opened up, will the virus flare up again, requiring the economy to be shut again in places? When it is open, how will people react? Will they buy? No one knows. It's okay to be cautious in that environment if you could be harmed. If you're not going to be harmed, you're a young investor, you don't have much money, you're still saving, then you continue to invest and make changes. But what are the narratives that we're listening to and is driving us to make decisions? What are the other narratives that people are listening to that's driving the economy? Schiller, I think, gets a little frustrated because economists don't like to focus on narratives or stories. They can't quantify it. But it's what humans do and will do and will drive major changes in the economy and the financial markets. That's episode 294. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide. And I'll email you an essay I do each week on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do just goes to your inbox. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>